Okay, so we're live. Welcome back to the Magic Minds podcast. I am Matt Bourke. Last week's show, we had the legendary Frank Ward. I got loads of feedback around Frank. Yeah, people were saying he's just a gas man. Really interesting story. Lovely human being. The fact about Frank that I love that he was able to share his vulnerability around his worries, his, ang- his worries and his anxiety, but also his handling of now having a cancer and his just strength of character was brilliant and the tough life that he had and his appreciation and his gratuity and it was just lovely to spend some time with him and sit down and have that conversation and that's the great thing for me about this podcast i get to meet amazing people like that and spend uh, an hour or two with them talking about their stories or getting educated around stuff like the tatiana brennans and the, the psychologists and the psychotherapists that i've got the opportunity to interview which i'm really grateful for i'm really grateful for any of these uh opportunities in life so on the show today i'm absolutely delighted to bring this interview to you it's with mark germain he's a a lecturer at it talent the institute of technology the sports science course where i've done a degree there and there's a lot of talk now in the media social media like i twitter you know boxers and mma fighters making weight cutting weight you know, you have all these charlatans and gurus going on about how to do it. And in my opinion, as a healthcare professional and somebody that works in brain injury, they're really dangerous. Their actions and their methods, to me, are really dangerous. You know, there's a simplistic way to lose body fat or weight or whatever way you want to describe it. But you got to do it professionally and you got to do it steadily. And, and I brought Mark on the show today to hopefully debunk all these bullshit myths and you know the George Lockhards and all these other people in the world I'm not trying to call them out but they're just wrong and it's it's unhealthy and somebody's gonna get hurt so as I say like anything I've an interest in it but it's only from reading I'm an armchair viewer so I like to bring the professionals on and Mark come on the show today to talk about all that you know performance testosterone dehydration hydration nutrition uh, weight cutting versus fat loss all these kind of things today and he delivered it in a really 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 professional and concise manner i was blown away by his uh his delivery of his message and uh, i'd be excited if i was somebody that worked for him i'd find it really exciting to have him on me team it's i really think that that's what boxing and combat sports needs are the likes of mark and there's many more of them up in it talent there's many more of them in ireland but do it properly and i think himself and the likes of my friend Carlin Harvey from OSA Nutrition, they're making changes, they're changing attitudes, they're changing, beha- changing behaviours in boxing clubs. You know, they're educating young kids coming up and I think that will be the change going forward. But if you have the likes of Mark at the helm and other sports scientists and enthusiasts, like he's a lecturer and, and that's a job, but he's also really passionate about it you can feel it from him you know he just loves it we we talked after the the interview and we could have talked for hours afterwards he just loves everything sports nutrition and uh sports science and it was absolutely amazing to have him on the show so look have a listen to it uh i'm sure people have an opinion on it whether they agree with it or not but i'd love to hear back from you give us a shout give us some reviews and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as i do enjoy the show on the show today i have mark germain mark how's it going how are you not bad Enjoying Christmas. 
Yeah, putting on a few pounds. Yeah, so New Year's resolutions to lose it all again. All right, all right. Look, I've asked Mark to come on to the show today. Mark is a performance nutritionist, also an associated lecturer at Talat IT, where I've done a sports science degree. You've done a sports science degree there too, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I did a sports science degree at IT Talat, and then I moved to Liverpool to do a master's in sports nutrition. Yeah, in 2013, I was just exiting out the door when you were going in. Yeah, so you, you probably would have been, like, say, Shane Malone. Was he in his year? They were a year below me. I was in uh, Simon Devney. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Simon well, yeah. He's a lecturer up there too. Yeah, so he, he's got a full-time gig as um technician, laboratory technician. So he basically is the technician for the sports science program now. Yeah, I would have given him stick now if I see him because we used to call people like that jobs for the boys. Yeah, but yeah. fair place, yeah. now he's now one of the jobs for the boys. Yeah, getting on well. Yeah, he's doing deadly. He's a great lad. I've asked Mark to come on the show today because, as I say, Mark is a performance nutritionist and he's got a, an extensive background in that kind of field. So I'm going to touch into that. Really, I asked him on the show because I've seen a post he put up a while ago about, about weight cutting, the old George Lockhart stuff. Now, we're not going to get stuck into George Lockhart and all that. We'll be probably will get stuck into some of his methods and all that, but we're not really about that. It's more about looking at it from a, a scientific background, a physiological, hormonal, and all the kind of the rims and rams of the whole performance and weight cutting and anything else that we can touch on. So, Mark, just give us a little insight to your background as a, a sports nutritionist. Right, so I, I probably similar to you in that I kind of started off in um, personal training, except I went through Crumlin College. Did Crumlin College there, and like I'm not I'm not saying this to not personal trainers, but I, after doing personal training, I felt like I wanted to do more. I wanted to achieve more, and that's. I was looking at, at the time, dietetics or sports science because I had an interest in, in sport nutrition. And after looking at the, the syllabus and the modules for dietetics, it was very clinical-based. So that's why I went down sports science route. Did my sports science degree at IT Talla because um, I live down the road, so it was very convenient. Did well on that. Um, and then in my first year, it was actually in the very first year doing sports science at IT Talla, one of the lecturers, Marcus Shorhall, he told me during one of the labs that uh, Liverpool John Moore's University were in the middle of setting up a, a master's degree program in sport nutrition and Graham Close and James Morton were going to be uh, seeing it up. So from that moment, I kind of had my eyes on getting into that sport nutrition master's at the end of it. And fortunate enough, after I completed my degree at Talla, I was able to go over to Liverpool and do a year in Liverpool um, sport nutrition master's. I graduated well, officially graduated in November, at the end of November. Uh, yeah, so well, did well. So I got a distinction in my master's. I also got an award for my research at Liverpool John Moores as well. So I was quite happy with that. What was your research in? At Liverpool John Moores. So my, my research project was looking at the effects of ZMA supplementation on perceived sleep quality, um, sleep quality, sleep time, um, cognitive function the following morning, and also some muscle strength performance tests the following morning as well. Because... I don't know, sleep is a big thing now in sport, in, in sport research, it's, it's kind of grown all the time. And with that, you have supplement companies trying to target the market because they see the market growing. ZMA is a supplement which has been recommended to take 30 minutes before bed on an empty stomach to help sleep. But my study is actually the only one that's ever even looked at ZMA and sleep. So there's actually no prior research even looking at ZMA supplementation and sleep. Really? Yeah, so I don't know, I don't know, why, they're, I don't know why they're they're claiming it because there's no research to claim that. Yeah, I've taken it over the years, and I wouldn't have said that it was it was great. It was very advantageous. Yeah. And I remember listening to a podcast just a while ago with, with Blind Boy, and Blind Boy was banging on. Now he does talk about some fitness stuff, which I wouldn't agree with. I love his podcast, yeah. by the way. But some of the fitness stuff he throws out is a bit mad, and he was banging on about uh, ZMA and all that. And I, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, a lot of people like reports, vivid dreams, um, stuff like that. So because my study was blinded, and I did ask participants then. Um, what they thought they got just to see the effectiveness of the of blind of blinding 
but the placebos and the Zelamate, they did they look exactly the same. I have like pictures, I took pictures at the time because they looked the exact same. So I'd ask people and people were coming in after taking well I didn't know at the time either I didn't because I, I was blind as well, so I didn't know at the end. But I had asked them, What do you think you're getting? And people were coming in, oh definitely got ZMA that like had a great sleep, definitely got ZMA. And then when you go back at the end of the study you go and you find out it was like actually like that was a placebo, you know that way? Fuck. Yeah. But like um this is, you've ever listened to like Professor Matt Walker so I have his book he, he he's like a, a sleep genius so I think of the book know. is around here somewhere I have it I love it I yeah. love the podcast you've done with Joe Rogan fantastic that's, that's how I first got into it so and when you hear, also because I just want to talk about supplements a lot of people take uh, melatonin yeah have it over there somewhere yeah. and he but he, he thinks that melatonin is essentially a, a placebo because the way it works if you're traveling time zones it can be very efficacious because your body doesn't know, or your circadian rhythm is going to be screwed if you're traveling time zone to time zone, because your circadian rhythm will be in Ireland, and if you go to Saudi Arabia and they're a couple of hours ahead, you're, you're not the signal to sleep isn't going to be coming from melatonin. So that's when he thinks it can be very advantageous because you can try reset your body clock by telling it now it's sleep time. But in normal sleepers, there doesn't seem to be much research to say that it's advantageous to say like someone like me who okay if i could get to sleep a little bit easier or a little bit earlier if there's something i could do to do that i would do that but there's no evidence that melatonin would help like someone like me all the evidence with melatonin seems to be if you have like insomnia or some sort of sleep disorder where it can kind of get your circadian rhythm back into flow but in normal kind of sleepers it doesn't seem to be that so that just on that kind of side note from supplements you know that way yeah now I do take it the odd time now if I've had to be having it like Christmas I've had a few days of drinking two or three days my sleep and be knocked off I will take some melatonin 5-HTP yeah. and gab it I might take that for one or two nights and then I'll pull it back yeah that's what it is he thinks it's like it's kind of resetting your circadian your natural circadian body clock if you've got if you're getting up in the morning you're getting daylight during the day and you're reducing light exposure at night time your, your normal melatonin cycle is probably going to be in, uninterrupted for example so I always try to do that. I try, even if I'm not doing anything that day, I'll try to get out for a walk before, like, 30-minute walk or before 12 o'clock. So then you're getting that kind of natural daylight in then. And I, my mom probably hates it when I come home for work because when I'm, at, when I'm at home in Liverpool, after I have dinner, like, I kind of have all the lights off and maybe just the TV on. So I have no lights. And when I come back with my mom, she's got, like, a really bright lamp in the sitting room and I keep trying to get her to switch it to, like, a dimmer light because it's so bright. Oh, that whole blue light effect, is it? Yeah, and, yeah. So yeah. I, like, because at night time, because of trying to um, reduce light exposure in the evening time, like I'll have my lights off and I will watch TV in the evening. But the t- the only light I'll get will be coming from TV probably. Whereas if I go back to my mother's now, she has like the big light on. She had to get new bulbs in the kitchen, and I'm like, oh, they're very bright, aren't they? She's like, great for cooking. It's like it's alright for cooking there, but when you're walking through at like twelve o'clock at night, you're getting blasted with that light, you know, like trying oh, to go to sleep. It's like uh, Lansdowne Road in the gaff. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. New fit ones. Deadly, deadly. <coughs> Excuse me. What kind of projects are you involved in at the moment? Team work, boxing. I know that you're linked in with a couple of professional boxers. I yeah. seen you. You done a bit of work with Scott Quigg as well. Uh, Are you on no, that team? No, um, not Scott. I graduated. Scott Ro- Scott Robinson works with Scott Quigg. Ah, uh, yeah. okay. Some of the lads that I'm involved at the moment would be like Tyrone McCullough. So he's from Derry, actually. He's an Irish lad. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. So he's a... W, last fight, he won WBO European t- Championship. Um, he's on track. If, 
all going to well. 2019, he could have a world title lined up, which is great for Ireland. You know, could have a, another world champion in Ireland. Savage. So that'd be good for him. So well, Jazza Dickens as well. Jazza, mm. he's very, un, very, very unfortunate year last year because he kept having this fight for the British title lined up. Um, your man pulled out with an injury. Had it re the date realigned. Your mum vacated the title. His brother stepped in. His brother then said he was injured. The fight got pushed back again. Um, and then I think the brother now that they're pulling out. So he went a whole year waiting on the day for the British title. We actually went through a full camp for a British title fight. Only for one week out, your man to pull out. So we ended up getting we ended up getting a fight against... Who was it? It was the, someone from Nicaragua or something like that. But, you know, your man, your man was just there for a payday. You know, he came, he got knocked out in the first round. And while it was great, you know, first round knockout, you kind of felt a little bit, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, you put all this work, you put a lot of work in for a British title fight and you get someone put in front of you who doesn't want to be there. You know that way? It's almost like all the hard work has gone to waste a little bit. You know that way? Mm. You put it all in for that. So that. And then we also have uh, Ben Sheedy. So he's from Manchester. He, uh, He was with... Champs camp in Manchester. He's had to move into Phoenix camp now in Manchester. So it's the same camp who uh, on the Frampton on the card Mark Heffron and Jack Massey. So they're in there. So he's had to move into a new camp. So I think he's going to aim for a central area title soon. But um, the thing with Ben is as well is that we're actually doing, me and myself and Carl Lang and Evan. So he kind of like got me into it through Liverpool John Moores University. So when I when you go to Liverpool John Moores University for sport nutrition. You get fed into a lot of um, work placements. So that's that's probably what sets it apart, in my opinion, from the other masters within the the UK and Ireland. Is that you really do? You get you get exposure to working with elite level athletes. So I was in there, and early on, I kind of got in contact with Carl because um, I was working with some of the scholar athletes. I'll, I'll, I'll just go through it, and one of them was uh, a karate lad. So he, he came to me then and was asking for some nutrition advice and he'd mentioned that he'd got a DEXA scan with Carl. So I got in contact with Carl then just to have a chat about it and he said that, because Carl himself was a 16-year-old world champion in Taekwondo. Do you think is a junior world championships or junior Olympics, something like that, but forgive me if he listens, like uh, he'll correct me, but it's, it's a 16-year-old world champion Taekwondo. So he had two Taekwondo fighters who were coming in to do DEXA and um, or more. So I said, you'll get Suk, the karate lad in then as well. So I kind of asked, could I go along, uh, learn from it, get more experience in that. And then kind of from that, kind of like formed a relationship with Carl and he kind of like men- mentored me, so to speak, because he's, he's doing his whole PhD in, in weight making and Taekwondo. Savage. Uh, yeah, so that he, he's literally just submitted the PhD. So that'll be coming out. Um, well, some of his studies will start coming out in the next year or two, which would be, be good. And I'm nearly sure that him and... Do you know Reed Real? Who? Reed Real. He no. he did his PhD. He, he's probably submitted his PhD now as well. But he did his PhD in an Australian Institute of Sport, and he did it in a, acute weight making strategies for combat sports. Fuck. Yeah, so sounds he, brilliant. Yeah, so he does good. So he he actually he looked at like water loading, for example. I think it's the only study that actually looked at water loading people. So he actually did a study on water loading. Um. So his his one will be coming out soon as well, and I think the two of them are going to link up and write a review paper in the next year. Which that that should be pretty good, I think, as well. Yeah, brilliant. Just a shout out though to, to that lecture you're talking about, Marcus Shorthall. Yeah. What a savage lecture. Yeah, I only had him near the end yeah. in the last year. He was brilliant, and I have to say, I really yeah. enjoyed his uh, lectures. Yeah, he, he's probably the lecture I got on most with throughout my years. Like, and oh. you could have a conversation with nutrition, and 
it's even his lecturing style and you could just ask him anything uh, it's good as well Marcus because I think it's good when the lecturers have a foot in the applied world because Marcus was obviously working in GA and then he was at Connacht Rugby and now he's actually full time at the IRFDO yeah. so it's kind of got that great balance between this is the <coughs> science and this is the practical you know that way because you need, you need you want to be a good practitioner or even a good researcher you should understand the practical element and the scientific element yeah and it's not all just textbook you know it's just no. about the the applied field yeah. and that was the good thing about talent now i've had me grievance when i was in the course and i was in his embassies and i had a moan about it years ago yeah. but but come near the end i left and kind of oh i wasn't so sure but i always knew that with kieran collins marcus shortall barry soul and you know some of the lecturers that were on it were fantastic fantastic as lecturers, but also fantastic in their field. Like yeah. Barry Solon's with uh, Arsenal, Arsenal, isn't he now? Yeah, yeah. He was a cool lecturer. Kieran Collins, savage, sound lad, actually. And then the likes of Marcus Shortos. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few others. Did you have uh, Jer Colloran? No, I didn't have Jer Colloran. I saw you had him on the podcast, though. Ah, um, he's one of the greatest yeah. lecturers I've ever had. I've like passed him a couple of times, but we never had him for our lecturers because um, we didn't have him for, for what he could have taken was microbiology, immunology. We had them modules, but we never had Jer for, for any of them modules. He's a decent human yeah. being. But some really, really good lectures on the course up there, isn't there? Yeah. Well, what I thought was good about it, I think I think Jer actually touched on it in, in your podcast, is that you go to a university and some of them have anywhere between 50 to 300 students in the class. You don't get to know the lecturers well, whereas IT Talent, you know the, the lecturers on a first-name basis, you have their number, you have them on Facebook, you become, you basically become friends with them, you know that way. I like that about that, and Karen yeah. Collins was like that, and then Barry Soul yeah. and a few of them boys. So that's, that's it, so it's not just like uh, lecturer students, it's like you're a colleague almost, you know that way. Because yeah. I, I don't know if a lot of people, a lot of students see this when they're going to tell but when I was going to, to college, university, I always saw my lecturers as future employers or someone who could p- potentially get me a job. So, like, now when I'm lecturing, I, I tell the students, you know, like, every day should be, you should treat it like a job interview because your lecturers are the people who are going to open up doors to you afterwards, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, you live with a sports science degree, but hundreds, thousands, probably thousands of students from the UK and Ireland are, are living with a sports science degree every year. You need to, you need to form relationships and build a network and, like, a lecture, your lecturers are really easy people to do that with because you're in with them, like, every week. For like 12 weeks one semester 12 weeks another semester yeah that's a great show actually yeah so that's why because that's how i treated it with with um university is that i always try to make good relationships with them because i thought they're the ones who are gonna profile me on and it, plus it's open it's a passion of yours as well and they've got yeah. research going on they've got equipment they've got like it's just being that circle it's just yeah. it's a great environment to be in it's good yeah and, and then get involved with their research as well so yeah. in my like first second third year i was always just volunteering you know and then like that because in first year if you're volunteering for post postgrads you're doing that you're getting building a network of people you probably wouldn't have had a chance to build a network with before you know because mm-hmm. you as an undergrad you wouldn't get any exposure or any interaction with the postgrads like they'll be in the, the sports science labs and office but if you're in there volunteering um, you then build relationships with them and that's and there are more people again who are going to open up doors for you or you never know down the line so like for example Sam Malone he's um I think he's under Nick Winkum and now at the RFU. So you like coordinates the sport science for wow. the RFU under Nick. So Savage. That's a pretty good position. You know, I'm uh, delighted to hear that now. Yeah. I really am now. That's deadly. As I say, <coughs> excuse me, I had me moan about uh, Tal IT because I was 
in there in 2010 as I say it was in its infancy and then when you're moaning about something you have to take responsibility and I probably didn't take responsibility because I was coming through a point in my life where I was questioning my own mental health so it was a bit of that and it was a bit of moaning about the court so in reflection it wasn't all them it was loads of me as well but I always said that if, Anton, if Kieran Collins is leading it because I think when he came onto the course it was set in stone that they couldn't change it for a couple of years and I might be wrong about this Yeah, yeah. you can only change it every so often but then he was involved, and I always says if he's gonna continue to 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 be lead, does he still the lead lecturer on it? Yeah, and uh, it probably joins into what you're saying there, because the course is actually changing now. So they have like a, a separate fourth now, which is more coaching and practical. Um, some of the clinical modules are take are taken out. So what was I? I delivered a new module this year, which is like um, principles of sport and exercise biochemistry, and that replaced sport sample analysis. Which oh, was right. yeah, yeah, I sports that. sample analysis is very about. It was in fourth year, wasn't it? I was in fourth year. Sec- second year, that one is like. Okay. Maybe, maybe they, they mix it around a little bit throughout yeah. the years, but so that they have. I, re- I replaced that module. That one's a lot about um, drug detection and, and so on. Some some of the stuff in sports sample analysis is interesting because if you do stuff like HPLC um, and chromatography, gas chromatography, it's essentially what some. I don't actually. I don't know what up to date drug testing is like, but that's what. They did use to use. They may still use some of their methods to de- detect drugs. In, for example, something like remember, remember we were talking about Johnny Bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could take some of the methods that they may use, and you do get a little bit of exposure to them kind of methods. You know that way. So there is, a, if you could work them in, because they still do labs. So if we could work in some of them techniques into the labs, I think it'd be good for the students just to get a little bit of um, exposure to what drug detection might actually look like that's savage I think one of the ones I was giving out about at the time uh, was it alternative health alternative medicine was one oh, of the modules on it we didn't have that on the Reiki healing and Tai Chi one day look they, they, they done their best looking back they done their best they were trying to be out think outside the box whatever now when I look back I think fair fucks to them they had a yeah. go it didn't really work now they're actually, it seems like, from anyone I talk to, whether it be Simon and other people outside the course, thinking that's going really well and the course is really successful and they've produced some great work. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's grown a lot. I think it's more, I think the more it's moving towards sports side, um, it's kind of moving that way because I think, I think it was Colin Murphy, one of the lead people at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was very clinical i think he was a pharmacologist by trade wasn't yeah he? i had him as a lecturer yeah i had him a second third and unfortunate but i think he's moved out of the course now for the most part i don't know he might deliver he might deliver one module maybe i think you know but he's cool. he's kind of he's kind of moved out and has kind of moved more towards sport but you can understand um it being clinical at the start because i suppose the idea was that sport and um sport and health science it was called sports science and health yeah yeah so I guess it's weren't they didn't they trial something in Ireland um, I don't know ten years ago like a GP referral scheme where they'd be referred to like exercise professionals I don't think it quite worked out but I suppose that was the idea behind the course is that you could yeah. these people would be able to leave and go into jobs where they could be referred by GPs it's, we probably need something like that yeah there was actually because I remember doing a, a review a lit review on exercise prescription you know for people with with stroke and all that kind of stuff yeah. and i was hoping to link in with doctors when i finished the course because i wrote to a few doctors saying that you know i'd like to work with people that were post-stroke you know blah blah yeah. nothing happened but yeah i understand what you're talking about yeah so because it probably do need something like that do you have something like that in in the uk you have like um i'm really sure a clinical exercise physiologist can work for the nhs 
So you go in on like, I don't know, band five, which is like starting 28,000 pounds, but at least mm. you have that set up. I don't know how successful it is in the, in the UK because they, they have as much of a problem with, you know, obesity and everything else that is related to it as well. So I don't know how, how effective that system mm. is, but at least they have the option. I think um, Ireland would probably have to have some something like that. Deadly. Just for the record, I'm a huge fan of IT Talek. <laughs> I'm always complaining before, and I know me, me old classmates are going to give me stick, but I am a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan uh, of Kieran Collins. Everyone, everyone complains at, at some some point about something. You know, because do you know what it is a sports science? So you're always going to have a couple of complaints because it's such a competitive market, sports science, especially in Ireland. Like, there's, when you're going out of sports science, it's not like um, a business degree or accounting or some sort of engineering where. You, you leave college and you walk into a graduate job. Yeah, it's, I found that the most difficult, actually. I'm not a baker, I'm not a butcher. Yeah, so it's... What it's, are you? It's not... You, you, there is no graduate jobs for sports scientists. Yeah. You know the way it's it. And it's a competitive market. You know the way so... And so it is tough when you're leaving. I think that's the, one of the challenges with, with sports science. I've done what you do, you were saying there a minute ago. I had to think outside the box, thinking all these uh, students are going to leave and the same as me. I'm going to be a mature student. How am I going to get a job after here and like you said some people network with the lecturers I kind of try to build my CV outside you know I taught in Weefield Prison and at my physiology for a year and then I was in the hospital the brain injury program so it is about that yeah, you're a student yeah. you have to think long term don't yeah. you you have to be doing other stuff uh, outside of what you're just doing in your degree because your degree no matter what degree you do it's, it's not going to prepare you for the real world you know that way yeah. you can only you can only deliver so much in a module you can only deliver so much in a program you of can course. only you can only give people so much experience but i think what's important is that you, you equip people with the tools so that they can go off and do their own thing or they, they can go off and they're proficient at gaining experience in different areas so yeah. i think it's more important that they have to at least have the tools to do it or the basic understanding or the basic physiology so they have that kind of little understanding and then they can build on that themselves because a lot of it is self-learning like um, but you need to be able to critically appreciate what you're learning you know that way right. so, so if you can teach them how to how to critically appraise and how how to learn properly then they can go off and get experience and then they can build on experience because experience is a big part of it as well yeah and Kieran Collins used to always go on about that you know and yeah. that's something we did take away and I really appreciate that come here let's get into to talking about weight loss versus fat loss what's your yeah. thoughts on that well so I suppose fat loss is loss of body fat whereas weight loss can encompass anything from water fat um, muscle gut gut content so if you have a big meal like if you like i'm saying if you have a big christmas dinner which weighs a kilogram you're going to be a kilogram heavier afterwards that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got an extra kilogram of muscle or fat on you it's just food in the stomach so there's all them kind of there's about four or five different variables which you can manipulate mainly just mainly water muscle fat and then gut contents probably um as you suppose the water you could probably break down into some glycogen as well because glycogen which is stored carbohydrate and that too can be easily manipulated and then there's some water associated with glycogen as well which also can be easily manipulated so that's why you see people if um people go on like a ketogenic diet and they'll lose loads of weight at the start but a lot of that is water and glycogen because you got low carbohydrate so you're depleting your carbohydrate stores we'll say about i don't know 500 grams maybe so 500 grams maybe of glycogen gone you got about three grams of water with every gram of glycogen roughly i think it's like 2.7 mm. so there's there's two kilos gone on the scale but none of it is fat it's glycogen you know that way so 
that's what people have to be conscious of when you're like you're saying it's weight loss versus fat loss sometimes like water glycogen and um, food in the stomach how much you're eating a big lots of salad lots of fiber you're probably going to be a little bit heavier but you're also going to have more food in the stomach yeah so. and that's what get, gets people after a week or two weeks and they think oh i'm not losing anything now i've hit a yeah. wall this diet is not working oh and then they just throw the toys out of the pram and then they just go back binging or eating shit again yeah you even see that with um so what I'll do is like when I'm working boxes, I'll get weight every day and you'll kind of see like a trend where there's some days where they stick and it could be like the same kind of days every week, you know that way? So I know even though they're still losing weight, I think they might have like a Sunday off or they'll do their like the last training session on a Saturday morning and then they won't train again until Monday and you'll see the weight is a little bit higher on Monday morning after the weekend. Yeah, and it's not like they've been eat, eating more food, it's just that they're not really exercising as much they're sitting around there's probably a little bit more food in the stomach a little bit more glycogen from not exercising and carrying a little bit more water but that that just goes straight back off again once they start <coughs> start moving so it's just kind of you know weight is going up on the scale but you kind of know that it's not true body fat isn't going up you know that way does that knock them does that like this when they hop on the scales does that throw them a little bit uh, i haven't found that with the lads that I'm working working? At, the, at the moment uh, well most of them anyway because like I said it, it is kind of like the same same day or same days every week and they kind of understand that uh, they haven't been doing much they kind of once they get back training this is going to come back down again you know that way so with them ones it's been kind of okay uh, so far it's just thinking I, uh, yeah I'm just thinking if anyone has been like that I don't think anyone has been what, what you'll see is that some people is that in but in combat or in boxing and they have an obsession with with sweating you know what I mean uh, I think it's like an old school thing in boxing where you know sweating is equals fat loss like the more the more you sweat and maybe it's not even limited to boxing but people think the more you sweat the more you know body fat you're losing you're you're losing more weight where there's an association where isn't a sweat means I'm born and means I'm hot yeah, I'm yeah. born in fat it just they just go together like fucking salt and pepper yeah because I remember I'm hearing one lad before and he's like um, saying that wear more clothes around I don't know the glute area because that's where you need to lose it from you know that way for fuck's sake but like in, in fairness um, I was there and then he asked me and I was like actually this won't actually affect it and then he just bought he was just straight away like oh I didn't know that fine and that was it so the, with some of the lads who do work with do do listen to you as well but I think you were talking about another podcast when you were coaching boxing kids they really are really professional boxers during camp at least you know boxers they, they really are they they eat everything at least during camp they'll, they'll eat everything they'll train two three times a day every like five six days a week they do they're really dedicated during that time frame you know like, yeah i found it you know with kids have done soccer ga and i found the boxing kids unbelievably professional yeah. and on the money you know and they just do whatever you you say before I get into that, I want to go back to just the weight cutting in boxing and combat sports. Give us your insights to that. Yeah, uh, I think it's moving for the better in boxing more so. I think cause there's more good professionals working in boxing than there would be in MMA. So I think you touched on Scott Quigg. So I know Scott Quigg's performance nutritionist is someone called Scott Robinson. So he did his master's at Liverpool John Morris University good few years ago I don't know like six seven years ago so he's well ahead of my time then he did his PhD in Birmingham and he's again he's so he's got PhD in I think he looked at like fat, uh, fat oxidation I think was his area 
He's got a PhD in that, and he works with a lot of um, is it Carl Gallagher or Joe Gallagher? Joe Gallagher is his trainer. Joe Gallagher, yeah. So Joe, he works with a lot of the that stable. So he's in there. He he's he's good. And then I you know a couple of other people. A lot of people at John Moore's work with some boxers as well. So we have um, Jamie, a lot of Jamie Moore's camp will be in with with some of the last from John Moore's. Carl well. Frampton. Frampton was one of the yeah. lads. Marcus. He was worked with Frampton on his last fight. And then one of the lads was um, Moorhen. He was over in New York with Rocky. Rocky Field and was yeah, over there. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great experience. I was, Unbelievable. I was even congratulating the nutritionist because I think like, even as a, job, a, a role in sports science, that's one of the pinnacles of what you can do in sports science to go to an arena like that. Like, you think of some of the things that if you're working as a practitioner, what you want to achieve, like what be up there, maybe a Champions League final, World Cup final, something like that, uh, and then like headlining a boxing main event against the biggest star in boxing in Madison Square Garden. Savage. Know, is pretty, pretty good. Like, yeah. Uh, I just a small part of me thinks that Eddie Hearn sold him out and uh, threw him yeah. to the. To the yeah. It was a it was a kind of a money fight. Now I'm an armchair supporter, so I can't really. I don't have much of an opinion. I would just think it was a bit of a money fight. He was never going to beat him. Probably had yeah. a puncher's chance. Yeah, that, I I thought like he had a puncher's chance just because of how big I was underestimating how big Canelo was going to come in though. Jesus, he's a little beast, isn't he? He's stocky. It's so stocky because I am um, because I was thinking Rocky's like six foot three. And he's a big super middleweight. So I was thinking, mm. Canelo, all right, like when he was 17, 18, he was welterweight, um, but probably like super welterweight a lot of his career. He moved up to middleweight recently. And now, middleweight to super middleweight is an eight pound jump. I think the only bigger jump is light heavyweight up to cruiserweight. Mm. So it's one of the biggest jumps in, in divisions. So I thought, Rocky's a big super middleweight. He, he could have a chance, but uh, like Canelo has just showed his class. He's a he's Shows why he's, why he's at the get in this 350 million dollar pound deal off Eddie Hearn but, but I do I do um, I do kind of agree with you I think a lot of people are saying that because I think he had to tee Canelo up with, with something with, with Eddie Hearn giving Canelo a 350 million pound deal if Canelo goes and loses his first fight after that it's, it's money down the drain almost for, for Hearn well not money down the drain but it it dents his, his investment at least, you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, and even see him when he fought against Callum Smith, you know, Callum Smith, like, fucking... Brilliant, isn't he? Yeah, and he's, he's a heavy hitter. He's with yeah. Joe Gallagher as well, yeah. you know. I really yeah. like Callum. Uh, but, yeah, I just I just thought, fuck, I just think he's, he sold his belt. And that's a horrible thing to say. But, look, I'm sure he's done well over financially. And that, yeah. That's, that, and he, that's, a, that's all they want. He's achieved his dream as well because he's had the opportunity to headline at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. You know, so... Win, lose, or draw, Rocky has gone and achieved a dream of his. Like, it's how many professional boxers will get a chance to ever side at the headline in a world title fight at Madison Square Garden? Yeah, you know? we, we look at it like we do with the Premier League. If you don't win a title, if you don't win a thing, you, you're not being successful. And I said I said to an actor one time about people playing music in, in a pub, and I says to them, uh, and then one day they'll make it, and he pulled me up and went, but they're already making it. Yeah, they're yeah. singing, they're doing something that they love. Yeah. Yeah. So he's already made, and that's yeah, savage th- from. I think so. Yeah. Like, I think. I think he'd he'd echo that as well. Is that he? Yeah. Well, just from following on social media, it seems like he he feels like he's achieved a dream. Yeah. Because he's fought a world for a big world title fight, main event, Madison Square Garden, like just before Christmas. Like yeah. Yeah. It is like stuff that most people can only dream of. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk specifically about like weight cutting in MMA. Yeah. What's your thoughts around the whole approach by George Lockhart? You know, as we said there, right? There's only two ways to to, to lose weight: lose weight or body fat. Yeah. And their methods is purely just fucking lean mass and just yeah. strip like fuck. 
Yeah, so what well, you see a lot, what appears to be the case in MMA is a lot of them are, like, George, I think the most George lot even works with someone is like three weeks, whereas in, with the boxes that we're working with, we're starting eight, ten weeks out so we can gradually bring down the body fat, so we don't really have to rely on these kind of extreme weight making. And they're them lads, when you're saying eight, nine weeks, are they there and thereabouts? Like we're talking five, six kilo? Very, How? I think it's very, very athlete dependent. Okay. Um, so... So one of the say for example one of the lads um working with he's probably six he's six or seven ki- kilos over and middle weight and so middle weight is a it's a smaller percentage than if you're yeah. six and seven kilo over at lower weight and then you've got people who are lower weight down who are you know 10 12 11 you know kilos over so it's very very that's, athlete dependent that's a lot to lose now 10 12 kilos 12 yeah. or six weeks out it, it is harder yeah it is harder it, what it is as well, I think it's a vicious cycle when you've got that much weight to lose because you've got to be a little bit more stringent, obviously, during the camp because you've got more weight to lose and less time. So you've got less flexibility during camp. And because you've lost so much weight in that time frame with so little flexibility, your brain and your body is going to be crying out for food and junk afterwards. So then afterwards, it's not even like you can control it. Like your brain is, is, is telling you, you know, to eat all this kind of stuff so then you're shooting back up afterwards so I think it's the um, I think a lot of it stems from animal research but we see it in humans as well so it's called rebound hyperphagia so after an extreme dieting period you'll eat and overcompensate of course so, absolutely so you'll so we see this in some of the people who are cutting big amount, big amounts of weight in a short time frame it's not even like they have any it's like I was saying like, they have like a you have like a brain thermostat have you ever heard of like the body fat set point theory? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's like kind of control. Boy, Elaine talks a lot about it. Yeah, so it's like you have like a thermostat in, in your brain. So like if, um, so for example, if you have a thermostat in your house, the heat, if the heat goes up a couple of degrees, it'll start to bring it back down to the thermostat. So your brain kind of regulates that in terms of body weight. If you've eaten, say like a lot of people eat a lot over Christmas, um, in the next few days people start feeling full and they'll generally, appetite will be lower so their brain's telling them to eat less. <clears throat> It's the same in the opposite direction. If you start losing loads of weight, your brain's going to be sending out signals to increase hormones for hunger. So you're going to be hungrier and hungrier. So that's kind of like what happens in the post-diet phase is that your body and your hunger levels are up and it's your brain telling your body, I need to eat more food. But you can tend to overshoot in that, that phase afterwards. So I think long-term, if you can kind of manage... Like you have to gain, you have to gain weight back. You know, you've dieted down. You're gonna to have to gain some weight back. But if you can manage the extent of how much you're gaining back after, I think that's gonna. If you want to have a long career at that weight division, otherwise you're probably if you're going overshooting each time, each weight cut gets harder. You're gonna force yourself up weight because you see a lot of boxers throughout careers they move up weight as they get up as they go on, mm. and probably plays into it in that they're cutting down, they're then overshooting, next camp gets harder overshooting again next camp gets harder then they really they might have one weight cut where they really struggle and they think right I can't do this again and then they move up weight class yeah and it's I think it's a it's a, it's a cultural thing and it's a psychosocial thing you know in order to, to, to change your behaviour you have to change your environment and all these people are you can't change their mates they can't change their area that they live in and this is the norm that they do they go out for a few points they eat well and they say ah sure fuck it I'll be able to cut in the, the, the 10 weeks yeah yeah what do you mean if you, if that, you... that's a good point though because a lot of them when they're in camp they're not at home when they're in camp they're in a different city or they're in a different country so they're sort of traveling 
So a lot of the time they're not at home. They're kind of quote unquote in camp where they're physically not at home. They actually are in camp. You know, yeah. right? And if they were to be in camp all year round, and I know that's not possible. That's yeah, just yeah. like white and fluffy. But if they had the environment that supports that, they wouldn't have those rebounds and they could prolong it and go into camps performing better. What yeah. do you think? I know. I totally agree. Because, um, for example, we had one lad. He, I think he started off at 84 kilos. I think we had like an eight-week camp. So to get down to middleweight, which is 72.5 kilos. And then afterwards, like he, he's, he's a professional, this guy is. He's really, really professional. So he was like, I keep overshooting afterwards like how do I manage that and we're like right we'll help you with that so like he went out for the next day for a meal with his missus like had a fry for breakfast whatever and then what he had he has he actually good deal so he has like a meal prep company so they'll provide all his food but he has a deal where they'll give them food out of camp too so he still gets all his meals provided through this meal prep company but it just means he's got that leeway so he'll eat he'll eat a breakfast he'll might have a bit of a fry or something like that at breakfast he'll have his couple of meals that he gets delivered and he'll have leeway so he can have like biscuits and if he wants to go for dinner with his missus he can go for dinner with his missus and he's probably maintaining his weight for like 78, 79 at the moment so he has managed it and he's had a holiday in that time as well like a jet off on holiday type of thing so Deadly. but he he's a, he's, he's like a, he's looking after me he really is professional because he, he wants to try maintain it it's actually a really interesting comment from him in that he has an amateur background and he says like um, so now since going professional after camp you kind of get this rebound hyperphasia where like he kind of blew it back up so he never used to get it in amateur it's only once he's gone professional boxing and he's actually once he started cutting this weight he like he, used to, he says like he used to be able to just maintain abs all the time and it's only once he started cutting weight uh, in a professional sense and then, then he started shooting back up why so, is that? might be the magnitude of weight loss so amateur boxing you're weighing in in the morning so people aren't cutting they're not yeah, doing these big cuts yeah, yeah, you've got yeah. less room so maybe because you're doing these big cuts getting down to lower body fat levels and maybe it's just triggering that brain a little bit more just to overeat but I thought that was really interesting probably Warren's like research we're doing we're actually doing a case series on him so savage where we've got one fight in the bank um, and we're just going to follow him for, for a couple of fights and measuring like energy intake energy expenditure and stuff like that during camp that's class he actually has some because we use like a polar wrist rust but he's after getting a new piece of kit which is actually pretty cool can't remember the name of the company but essentially like this wristband that you you stick around your wrist and you can put it and you can put your gloves on over it and then it can measure the how many punches you're throwing whether you're throwing a hook whether you're throwing a so so we so now now as well as getting all the heart rate data uh, from the training sessions we be able to get like how many punches she's throwing during the training sessions for example or how many power punches are I don't know if it can measure the force of the punches savage so I'd have to look into how reliable the equipment is you know Class. but it, it is a pretty good piece of kit if you can start measuring something like that in boxers savage because there's, there's very little research in professional boxing there's yeah, one one case study which um, my professor James Morton did so he did a case study uh, on Derry Matthews back in 2008-2009 so Derry Matthews is a professional boxer in Liverpool. A class boxer, yeah. Only, only one, yeah, um, only professional boxing uh, research, I think, at the moment. Derry, Derry actually is class. He's, I work with the lads in Derry's gym. That's yeah. how I got into it. That's actually how I got into professional boxing was that Derry had Jazz fighting for a British title, phoned up Carl um, and said, Carl, can you give us a dig out? And Carl was busy with his PhD at the time, so I think because I worked closely with Carl, Carl asked, would I would like to get on board with it? 
and just uh, chew it off that they get getting into it. So I started working in the gym, and then, then during day train between like twelve and one, so I used to go down to the gym between twelve and one, get to know the coaches, get to know their athletes. While I was there, they were like, "Oh, we have um, Tyrone who's three weeks out, and he's got like X amount of weight to us. Would you be able to help him?" So then I was like, "Yeah." So I rang rang Carl's. I was thinking he was like. Uh, like he had a lot of weight he said just be careful you know um, what you're getting involved in and if you don't want to be trying to take on something who has too much weight or something like that so took that on board so I took that, took that on and helped out Tyrone and then that's how I got involved with Tyrone then as well and you kind of just build like that you know savage like, savage great so, gym though great lads it is a, I think it's a wide open field for like I think nutrition is, is a core is a core base it's the fundamentals of boxing i think yeah. they need to put more emphasis on it you know for performance wise what are the implications though of, of cutting huge weight that way that lockhart does it you know the the saunas the calorie restrictions the dehydrations the water loading yeah so like that so carl who i said i used to work with he co-authored a paper where they actually took in it well they didn't actually do anything they observed an mma athlete a professional mma athlete you think it was like he was a cage warriors champion so he was at a, a pretty elite level and what they did was they observed him during a camp and then on fight week they took plenty of blood, blood measurements they took like vo2 max rest of metabolic rate they measured his hormones throughout the camp um and in particular fight week and what you can see is that i think he lost throughout the whole camp he lost like about 19 percent body weight which is quite a lot a lot of weight to those fuck but what was big as well is that in them last 24 hours, I think he lost about 9% body weight due to dehydration. So at the start of the week, so they did um, eight weeks out VO2 max test, four weeks out VO2 max test. Then last week when he was cutting the weight VO2 max test, couldn't complete the VO2 max test. He just he just wasn't uh, physically able to, to complete it. When you have about <coughs> 2% dehydration, that's when like cognitive function will start to be impaired. Because with um, dehydration, you'll get impaired cerebro, um, cerebrospinal blood flow. So you actually get decreased blood flow to the brain. Mm-hmm. If you're dehydrating, you're probably dehydrating some of the fluid from around the brain, which is going to protect it. So cognitive function starts to go down. Aerobic function may start to go around 2% dehydration as well. And then as you go down, 3-4% anaerobic, and then probably about 5%, you're talking maximal strength. So it depends on the severity of dehydration, depending on what is effective. Now, I I personally think it, it matters how you dehydrate, because if you look at marathon runners, they're finishing, what, 7 8% lighter body weight. Now, I don't think that means that they're 7 8% dehydrated, because they're starting competition, right? They're starting competition, you hydrated, but they're also carbohydrate loaded. So they're going to be carbohydrate depleted at the end so i think you have to take into consideration whether it's just pure dehydration or this glycogen loss and like what we said about the weight loss earlier yeah Yeah, i get that point so that's that's why i think a lot of the research has used to be drink and fluid to maintain body weight whereas that's probably counterproductive in something like marathon running or endurance running where as you run the lighter you get you're probably going to run a little bit more efficiently you know Mm. like and Mm. it's not dehydration dehydration you're you're losing your carbohydrate stores all the time even though you're taking in lots of carbohydrate and you need something to hold the water as well yeah so that can be detrimental to you having too much water yeah so that's that's it so i so now it's kind of drink the thirst because perception of dehydration is probably a big thing as well wow that's a great point so if you drink the thirst 
that seems to be a, a big one. Because I, I actually thought this because I saw a study recently where they blinded the participants to hydration. So if you think about, like in, in studies when you're blind people, so they're not supposed to know what they're getting, it's going to be quite hard to deal with hydration because you know if you're drinking something or not. So what they did in this study was what they fed a tube down the nose and into the stomach and had the tube coming behind the head and they had the, the water at room temperature so they couldn't feel it going down. So they either, during the trial, infused it with water so that they had water going down through the tube or no water. And what they found was that 3% dehydration uh, impaired performance. But then when I'm thinking that as well, I'm thinking, well, because they weren't actually physically drinking anything, that could also do it because they're not getting that perception of quench of thirst or anything like that. So is it true? Is it dehydration or is it the fact that they feel like they need a drink? So that could also have, because you have, you have some studies where they're showing two, two percent dehydration, three percent dehydration. That's not really affecting performance that much. You right. know, like, so I think if you, it'd be interesting if they had like some sort of drink where they could just, cause it's that perception of thirst think has a big impact. Yeah. That's fascinating. When you talk about, uh, the hydration, uh, dehydration for coming up to make weight like some of them like MMA fighters are losing 20 kilos 10 kilos 15 kilos 2 days 3 days before a fight and they're, they're dehydrated like fuck yeah. and then they're talking about you can hydrate in 24 hours to me that's nuts as far as I know from my years years ago so my yeah. education is not up to date 24 hours is not right I would have said probably 48 longer the, you see some of the MMA guys, I think uh, it was in George Lockhart bragging on a podcast, I, like one guy on, on Tuesday he was £185, on Friday he was £155, so you're talking £30 through water manipulation, which is probably dangerous, dangerous, because what happens when you, again it depends a lot how, how you're dehydrating, but what happens when you're dehydrating, what is like your blood is made up of plasma, 70% plasma, and plasma is predominantly wa- water. So if you're dehydrating, you get a decrease in blood plasma. So that really results in not only so you get hypotension, so low blood pressure. That's how a lot of a lot of these fighters can't stand or only easy on their feet. So you get low blood pressure. But what you'd also get then is because you've got low amounts of water, you'll get high concentrations of blood metabolites. So for example, sodium. So we actually showed actually showed, I think they showed that in the in the case studies that after dehydration you get what's called hypernutremia and that's um sodium blood levels which are above 145 millimoles and they they show that in the case that that can be fatal like blood sodium is pretty tightly regulated in between uh, probably 135 to 145 probably somewhere between 140 to 145 most cases but um if you got hypernutremia you got this it's a high sodium concentration in the blood that's essentially what it is and it can be fatal in terms of the brain, but it's also in terms of a, a cardiac function. So it can affect the pacemaker and the heart. And that's how you get, um, in some extreme cases, you appear to people dying during wrestling so far through cardiac arrest. Mm. And that's likely due to dehydration, low pl- um, plasma volume. Then you got hypernutremia, which then can affect the heart and electrical, to, uh, electrical activity of the heart. Fuck, that's so, nuts. But they'll tell you, sure, this is the way we've always done it, yeah, yeah. and it works. Yeah, but people, people, but then like, they mightn't be not be aware. Like, there is Kate, Kate, there is several cases where people have died. I'm, I'm not really sure 
last year and someone in Taekwondo died. Someone this year, a young girl died making weight. Was that Taekwondo, was it? I don't know if she was a boxing girl or something. So I read it, my mate Carolyn, my mate Carolyn, that was OSA Nutrition, she's working with a lot of boxers now. Uh, and she she's of the, the thought, you know, no dehydration, no starvation. She's getting kids and she's working with kids. She's working with yeah. White Collar or uh, White Church Boxing Club. And I think it's a brilliant place to start. Catch kids early yeah. and educate them. Educate them. You don't have to starve to, to, to drop body fat. Yeah. And do it early. Yeah, no, especially at that kind of young age where you need to be fueling to grow as well, you know. I yeah. Think, I don't think there should be any focus on making weight at, at a young age because... It could be messing with kids' development. And carry uh, those skill sets right up into adults. Like yeah. the way football is here. They play lovely football, like junior football. And then when they get up, they're kicking the boot and the ball up. Yeah, up yeah, the field. yeah, yeah. And, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's nuts, isn't it, like, to, to yeah. do that? It's crazy. You know, what you also see with somebody who's extreme dehydration is that, in terms of the hormones, like, I think they looked, they may have actually found it, but up until a point they thought they had recorded the lowest ever testosterone levels in, in the literature. So they had to like search the literature pretty hard to find somewhere which had um, comparably low testosterone levels during the weight, the, well, the final weight cut itself. And then cortisol levels tripled as well. Fuck. Yeah, so cortisol levels tripled um, at the weigh-in. So you're signifying like a lot of stress on the body. Now, how much of that? I, actually, I think a lot of it is due to the dehydration because someone made a point, which is a good point in that, you know, it's weigh-in how much of that is psychological stress because that is a good point absolutely huge one but cortisol was stable a lot throughout the whole week whereas if it was just if it was, some of it was fight stress you'd, you'd expect to see some sort of elevations not just on, on that day there'd be you'd, peaks there'd be, you'd be worrying about it a day beforehand or two days beforehand it'd be on your mind throughout the week so I think a large part of it is due to the dehydration although you can't rule out that some of it might be psychological stress yeah but then you know yourself if you're not sleeping if you're, first of all if you're not eating properly and you're still training like balls to the wall. You're not going to sleep, Roy. Your your perception, your mood, your your cognition, it's going to be all over the shop. So you're yeah. going to get that uh, uh, cortisol response and inflammatory response. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. There's an interesting one with sleep is that I know, again, um, there's an Irish guy actually in, in Australia who works, he's done a little bit of research at Reed Real, so Ian Dunican, he's going to have some research coming out soon looking at acute how acute weight loss affects sleep so that would be interesting because again myself and carl we have that case study which came out where they documented uh what happens during a uh, weight cut and during mma whereas we'll have a new case study coming out where it's actually an intervention we took um an elite level taekwondo fighter over eight weeks and we actually implemented a strategy of how to make weight and again we we measured even more than we measured in there we went, we even went like cardiac function so he's getting heart scans and everything or or bloods um we measured hydration we were measuring osmolality we did skin folds every week did about four or five dexes four or five or mores um he measured every training session did a strength test as well reactive strength index it's a lot we measured his sleep every night throughout, throughout the camp as well so was, we have a lot like you have so much data because it's only a case study but there's so much data that it was almost like like we could nearly write this into like two two papers so that's like that's going to be Carl's final PhD study and when is that out? don't know so he submitted his PhD so I imagine the manuscript for that case study possibly in the next year maybe he, he's presented it at ECSS in Dublin during the summer oh really? yeah he presented it at 
um, Oysink, so International Sports Sport and Exercise Nutrition Conference in Newcastle as well. Wow. So, so the data is presented at conference level. It's just a matter of getting into manuscript. Now that his PhD is finished, you probably can put it into manuscript and, and get to there. But that'd be that'd be a big one. Like that'd be a good one. Um, be interesting to hear how the impact on the sleep, you know, because we go yeah. back to the sleep, you know, nutrition, training, all that affects your sleep. Serotonin yeah. levels, serotonin goes down, fucking cortisol goes up. Yeah. So like, as uh, the spoilers, like, we we actually didn't find that uh, it impacted sleep. Didn't well the weight cut itself. Did it not? No. So spoiler alert. I know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little a little nugget from the paper for people anyway. Yeah, because we actually. It wasn't even like a, it was a real multidisciplinary team project. So Carl headed up his project. I was on the nutrition side. There's um, a Canadian guy called Mario Artukovic. So he's in Canada, he's in um, China now, but he did the strength conditioning. He took every strength conditioning session with the athlete. Then we also had Craig Thomas, who is a sleep researcher, and we brought him on board, and he did all the sleep. So he gave he had the sleep watch. He measured all the sleep. So um, so he he's actually producing his own research at the moment. Because just on sleep, he's been looking at how high intensity training impacts sleep, and sure. he, he actually found that if you do high intensity, because it used to be you know oh, don't train in the evening because it's going to affect sleep. Where he's at the finding now that this is like published at conference level, so I could probably like this the abstract is out there, so I could say it, that high intensity interval training in the evening or high intensity training in the evening, it's about six p.m. actually increased um, deep sleep, so NREM sleep, so it actually. It actually was beneficial for sleep. Well, according to the decadian cycle, uh, it shouldn't. It, two o'clock. Well, I think two to six, or, or I think, excuse me, four to six is the optimal time for training. Anyway, yeah, I think it depends on the type of training. So between like four, is and it? Seven, strength training, you should be stronger in the evening. Strength yeah. training, I think earlier in the day, probably aerobic training. Okay, cool. Maybe, maybe because it's high intensity, it might be a little bit different. Yeah, so that, that's why you actually. So on that point, when we're working with boxers. Typically, training schedule will be in the morning. Actually, I I can probably go into this a little bit more detail. I'll give a little, uh, um, just a template for. It. So in the morning they do some cardio, or they do that faster in the morning. I can go into why in a, in a minute. Then they'll do their technical boxing session in the gym in the afternoon time, and then in the evening time they'll do a strength or power based session. So they're doing kind of like three sessions today. I'll go into. Do you want me to go into like why they do like in the in the morning? Classes? Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of this new um, paradigm or new, we're going to go down a new direction in, in sport nutrition. Instead of being like high carbohydrate all the time, it's kind of more periodized carbohydrate intake where we're targeting certain sessions where we might have one session high carbohydrate, another session low carbohydrate. Fantastic. The idea of this is that like low muscle glycogen, you get increased cell signaling response to aerobic training. So if you do an aerobic or an endurance-based session, or even high-intensity training where you're trying to promote endurance-based adaptations, if you've got low muscle glycogen, you can actually increase the signal or the increase the adaptive signal to that training session itself. Wow. Yeah, but the flip side of that is is that, so people might think, oh, why don't you just do low-carbohydrate all the time, is that you also decrease um, an enzyme called like PDH. It's basically like the gatekeeper for carbohydrate into aerobic metabolism. So if you're low carbohydrate all the time, you really you decrease your body's ability to use carbohydrate as a fuel. So you're gonna lose that top gear. So that's where we kind of come out with this approach where some sessions you target as low carbohydrate sessions, and then like that. So we'll do like fasted aerobic in the morning, 
and then we'll fuel up with carbohydrate before that technical boxing session so they can get a high quality session in because that's the thing with low carbo training is that you've got decreased training capacity you'll see that in in all the studies even when even though you've got higher response but if you're looking to complete a certain training session of high quality it, you'll have a decreased quality with low carbohydrate so then we'll put carbohydrate back in for technical boxing session or particularly sparring as well so if someone's going to be doing sparring you don't want them going in under field and then again with strength training they'll feed and then after strength training the evening you're kind of the last meal will restrict carbohydrate again it's going to make sure that their glycogen levels aren't too high for the morning and it's kind of like that kind of cycle whereas these ones low carb then high carb high carb low carb and you're kind of like structure on like a meal to meal basis Jesus, that's that's that sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah, just touching your point there about going low carb, like low carb. To somebody, it has to be fat adapted as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. To try work on performance and go low carb is not ideal for boxing, is it? Not all the time, no. Uh, like like that because like I was saying, yeah, you're gonna lose top gear, and you might you might feel okay like like that if you're doing morning runs or something like that, or if you're doing like a light pad session, but. If you're going in there sparring or you're doing heavy um like a heavy day in the gym you're gonna you're gonna feel it particularly through a camp another thing of that is so sleep might be affected if you've got low carbohydrate i um, found that I, my serotonin levels dropped and then cortisol went up and i used to slowly have terrible sleep if yeah. we went low carb and trained that is one of those also sleep and also immune function so carbohydrate can be quite beneficial for our immune system and if you're thinking about you're in you're already going to have a your immune system is already going to be back against the wall because you're going through a camp, so you're in an energy deficit throughout the whole, the whole time. Not only energy deficit, but that's exactly what I was thinking. Training two, t- three times a day, so you're you're probably at increased risk to get um, some sort of infection. And then you got low carbohydrate all the time on top of that. That you're you're increasing your. I'm not saying people. I'm not saying you're guaranteed to get sick, but you're increasing your risk. It's yeah. all it's all risky. You can never probably say it's like saying. During the winter, you're at increased risk of getting sick. You can never say, oh, you're going to get sick during the winter. But the thing is that during the winter time, you've got a higher chance of getting risk. More probability, yeah. yeah. And and fighters that have the most amount of weight to lose in a short period of time will predominantly go to low-carb, low-carb because yeah. it drops weight, i.e. muscle glycogen, yeah. water weight. Yeah. It's, not, it's not predominantly the fat loss, what they need to be doing. Yeah, so we... I'll try to keep that for like last week or the last couple of days. So we will, typically in the last couple of days we will drop. Uh, well, it depends on how much you have to lose, but typically we will cook carbohydrate in the last. I try to leave it as little as possible. You know, um, uh, some people do like ten days, some people do seven days. If I can get away with it, I'll do like four or five days and like then cook carbohydrate because I want them in. Because like that, like I was saying, in as little as three days of low carbohydrate you can start getting down regulation of that enzyme pdh so the, the longer time that you're in low carbohydrate state the more you're going to affect that enzyme and it's probably going to be harder to utilize the carbohydrate when you put it back into the system that's probably one of the big challenges with with um cutting weight because like you can cook carbohydrate quite safely during fight week it's not um it's not disadvantaged to health at all the the dilemma is that you know that the science is saying that you're decreasing your ability to use carbohydrate. So what's the time course for recovery or and how little time can I get away with it for you know that way? Yeah, and they, they talk about it like the Lockhards of the world and all these other uh, weight-cutting gurus, we'll call them. Like you can replenish glycogen in 24 hours, you can replenish water. But that is not the case. And like to talk to the likes of Craig Coakley and other uh, combat sports people that I know that fight, 
they're going in a 70% some of them 60% performance to me that's nuts yeah it's crazy that is you could, you could probably replenish glycogen in, in 24 hours so. do you reckon yeah you I would re- thought it was a lot longer now no um, four, I could, three I could, to four days I thought it was the I could, I could, if I, if I, afterwards I can pull up my phone I'll show you but you can you can replenish glycogen in, right. in 24 hours it probably takes about 24 hours and if you are really trying to do it quicker with like 60 grams of carbohydrate every hour you could probably do it even quicker than 24 hours if like if you're really on it you don't need to do it quicker than 24 hours in combat sport because normally you'll have well, that's 20, an education for me 24 to 36 hours but you could do you could do glycogen um hydration in terms of dehydration uh, i'm unsure in terms of the brain so i don't know how long it takes I, i'm I've, I've had a look there's a lot of the stuff with the brain is in animal models it's probably hard to get ethics to do it in terms of humans to dehydrate them and then measure their cerebral fluid afterwards but i'm unsure of how long that takes to recover um so i'm not sure about hydration but glycogen you can do afterwards like after when you're rehydrating the kind of guidelines is that you take on about a liter and a half for every one kilogram that you lose Mm. through dehydration but Um, just look at the basic facts that we just covered there a minute ago uh hormonal uh impacts brain uh, VO2 max, anaerobic, aerobic, all these, yeah. all these uh, parameters and what should be advan- advantageous to you are all affected by extreme weight cutting. Yeah, I think I heard like Reed Reed really say it before that because he, he actually does judo himself and that you know you're looking at well, when you're looking at weight cutting you're talking about um, a relative performance advantage because you're not going in there hundred percent. So you're talking about. Are you getting a performance advantage relative to your weight and then relative to your opponent as well? That's you know brilliant. I, mean? I was I wanted to ask you, and I'm glad you touched on that. So say that again. We just run so that like point look, again. Looking at like a performance advantage, like relative to weight, and then also relative to your opponent. So you're not you'd be going in there probably better if you were a hundred percent all week. But then you That's also not so saying that to someone yeah. the day. But then you also have to counter the fact that you'd be fighting at a higher weight class. So you're, you know, if you were at that all week. Um, and compare that to how is your how is your opponent going to be cutting down to weight class as well? So it's all, it's kind of like relative in terms of performance advantage. Yeah, in, I was thinking, say you were at eighty kilo, say you were hundred kilos, and the day before the fight you got down to eighty, and on the day of the fight you went back up to eighty, and the two years are eighty, and yeah. that's you go to. But I was saying, what if you were you were you were whatever eighty five just before the weigh, and you lost a bit of weight and put it back on. In comparison, then when you went in with that eighty-five, that you're performing optimal. Yeah. Would could, that be the guy that's at the putting on the twenty kilos within a day? It depends on the sport, I think. Um, it, boxing or MMA or some. See, I'm yeah. I'm not really I'm not knowledgeable about it, so I'm just an armchair guess. What you'll what you'll see in the some sports where weight makes a difference. So where so in some sports rehydration or how much someone regains after weighing can actually predict winning performance so M- mma is one uh, wrestling is another and oh because they can lie on each other and yeah, so just the, that the, the weight phys- advantage exactly so the physical size of somebody makes a big advantage now if you look at amateur boxing um amateur boxing was one i think maybe like taekwondo might be another where range is important but the, your your body mass isn't that important so that how big and bulky and strong like you are like amateur boxing is a bit more technical in range, you know that way. Like, the same with taekwondo, whereas wow, that's MMA, brilliant. MMA, wrestling, judo, it, like 
you're lying on top of somebody and that can tire somebody out if you if you've got a big person who weighs an extra five kilos on top of them you know it can tire somebody out it can make a big difference so in them sports it, it can actually make a big big difference okay so the advantage of having peak performance could be no Offset. pun intended yeah. but it could be outweighed by the, yeah, the heavier guy exactly yeah yeah come here so what would the advice be to somebody you know cutting weight managing weight performance wise what, what's your thoughts on that what do we do we say to those people um, typically what we'll do when I'm in Liverpool is that we'll obviously have an athlete who'll come to us we'll, we'll first do some baseline assessments so we'll bring them in we'll normally do like a DEXA scan to get an idea of how much fat mass they're carrying and then relative to their body mass then we'll do like an RMR test as well and we'll probably do a VO2 max test so we'll get like a baseline of what their kind of rest of metabolic rate is where their kind of aerobic capacity is and then we'll also get a look at how much body fat they're carrying and then based on that particularly when you're looking at a deck because dexes are quite good at measuring body fat in terms of grams so a lot of people will say like, so like if you look, body fat percentage because it, lean body mass can change a lot with a dexa so if lean body mass can change a lot body fat percentage can t- change a lot but in terms of if you're just looking at total figure so that says it has like 12 kilograms of fat it can be pretty reliable. It's pretty reliable that it has somewhere around twelve kilograms of fat. And then if you know that the lower end for fat for humans is like somewhere around four or five kilograms, then you can kind of get an idea of like, okay, how much body body mass or body fat can you lose safely to get down to this weight? Because you know, we'll factor in how much acute weight loss as well. So you know that, say someone comes here and, for example, he is uh, seventy kilos and he wants to fight at sixty kilos. And he's got um, 10 kilos of fat mass. And, you know, you can probably get him down to like five, five and a half. And then, and then you know, all right, well, you still need to find another five kilograms to lose. You're probably thinking five kilograms, probably not going to be safe to do five kilograms. You're probably not going to be able to do five kilograms through just acute weight loss strategies. Or I'd have to work that out, like how much that would actually be. But you'd be putting out a bit of a stretch. So then you have to talk to them and say, all right, well, because people respond differently to dehydration as well so it's either going to be you either fight at a weight club uh, class above or at the start of camp you're going to have to take off a little bit of muscle and you're going to be weaker but you're going to have to you got, are you willing to sacrifice that to fight at a lower weight class or you could we could just make you stronger at the higher weight class so we've we've done this with um something similar with two athletes before where they've come into those two on the same day um done a DEXA with them so afterwards we were like okay um, this is if you if you want to get down to this way we can probably get you down to this body fat but then you're going to have to dehydrate a little bit you know that way so you can probably dehydrate 2 to 3 3% 2 or 3% um, depends on the athlete but so what we did was that we were like okay we'll arrange a day where we'll go to a gym and we'll do we'll go to the sauna so we brought the scales, I went to the shops, I bought like water, milk and oral rehydration salts so that we can rehydrate them straight afterwards. And what we did was that we scheduled, one of them was meant to be the same day away in, so we scheduled a training session for later on that day. The other one was meant to be day after away in, so we scheduled a training session for the day after. And the goal was to go there and see, basically see how they respond to dehydration. One of them lost, I don't know, like 500 grams and came out of the sauna and he's like I'm starting to feel lightheaded so we're just like right sit down get fluids into you you're not going to be able to, to cut down to the weight safely so just move just fight a higher weight class so we just said to him you, you're just not doing it you know that's like, class whereas the other guy lost like two kilos 
uh, about a kilo and a half, but he, we just cut it short because, you know, this guy can probably lose around. We probably have like two kilograms to play with, with this guy that he, he can do it. Um, so that just kind of the difference So we told one guy yeah we can get you down because you have the body fat to lose and we know that we have like two kilograms to play with and the other guy were just like nah yeah. you need to be able to, to, to do that as well to t- say to someone no it's not safe you know what I mean? it's not safe for you to get down there so you're better off fighting that higher weight class like. that's a savage approach I love it I love it it's just really professional what's the difference in performance when you're talking 2-3% dehydration does it affect their performance? If you were to, if you were to test them straight away, or maybe even the same day, it may do. But if you've got twenty, if it's only two or three percent, if you've got twenty four or thirty six hours recovery, you should be able to to get back, um, no problem. Like, cause I'm, cause I just always think about this with dehydration. And then when I went to used to go watch the boxing sessions, some of them, some people just sweat like I've never seen before. And so like it was during the summer. And one of the lads go for his run in the morning, and he'll go for the, go for a run like not trying to dehydrate and just like part of normal training session, and then come back from his run two kilogram lighter, just because he just sweats so much. So you know, like someone like that, you've got no problem. You've got like two two kilos where it's not he, he won't even like feel that, feel that coming off him. Whereas then you've got the other guy who was in the sauna and like five hundred grams. So there there is there must be something with the sweat rate. I don't know if it's um, an adaptation thing where they've been trying to sweat throughout their career in boxing and they nearly have like... There's a response to it. Yeah, so maybe it's like a heat adaptation spot where they, they sweat more now as a as an adaptation because they've been training to do that all along. So I don't know if that's part of it. Um, I haven't seen any research, research on that. I don't know if anyone has looked at that. But that's a fascinating insight, actually. That's, that's possible that it's a response through doing it years and years and years. So obviously from what you're saying there, some people respond okay to dehydration, others just don't. Yeah. And it's cool that you're actually taking a look at that because the mentality would be everyone just sweats it out, everyone yeah. just dehydrates and you just fucking get on with it. Yeah. But it could be detrimental to the people's health. Yeah. So like that guy who came out even just 500 grams, he didn't train later on that day. So we were, we were going to schedule a training session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were going to, we, the plan was to schedule a training session to see how they perform in the training session, which would be relatively similar um, time frame from weigh-in to competition during competition itself uh, so for example the other guy who lost about two kilograms he came out and he said yeah i was tired for a couple of hours and once i got the fluids into me by that evening he was he was ground again and then he trained the next day no problem so there is that there is an individual response and i'm not too sure why it's, it is so individual and if doing it over the years has made some people adapt to it i'm not too sure when you were talking about weight loss and 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 hydration is in the back of your mind where it is for me performance 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 yeah yeah so like throughout throughout the count like while you do have to bring the weight down do you still have to because it's not just performance it's also adaptation for me so like it's like you want to fuel to perform but you also want to fuel because the reason that you train is so that you can adapt Mm. and get fitter get stronger yeah yeah yeah. brilliant great point you want to focus on performance at times but then at other times you still want the nutrition to structure to maximize adaptation to training as well yeah great point that's and, a savage point and that's where it comes into the, like this periodized approach and that you know you're targeting adaptation you're fueling when you need the fuel and then you still work in that energy deficit so that they can bring down the weight and it's kind of like that that's the kind of and then you have to structure that around the training sessions so different fighters might train at different times and as a result, their nutrition patterns might look slightly different. 
it's about digging that little hole isn't it filling her in digging a little yeah. hole filling her in and then all of a sudden you have a big mound and yeah. that's your peak performance well as your as your man George Lockhart says you can't uh, you can't be anabolic and catabolic, catabolic at the same, same time, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy isn't it yeah I couldn't believe that he was on the Joe Rogan show and he, and he spelled yeah. that shit it's, we, can, we can dispel some of the myths because like remember he used like the car analogy for he was like if you have a car you know, you don't want to put fuel in before you go for a drive. You want to put fuel in after when you deplete it. So you're saying that you shouldn't have carbohydrate before your workout because then you're not going to... He actually said that if you have carbohydrate before your workout, you'll increase insulin and that will stop you from using carbohydrate. But, like, the research is really clear on this. If you have carbohydrate before your workout, you're going to decrease the amount of fat you use and increase the amount of carbohydrate you use. So it's... You know, he's, he's just got a really, really poor understanding of like basic physiology because you'll get increased carbohydrate oxidation rates. Because what insulin will do, insulin will suppress lipolysis. Mm. So you'll get decreased fat oxidation. And as a result, you'll have increased carbohydrate use and carbohydrate oxidation. And that will be the, the fuel for your training. Yeah. And that will, you know, it's... Yeah. It, I think I learned that first year in college. Yeah, it is. It's like, that's what I mean. Like, it's, it's a really basic, basic physiology stuff where it's just, you're just kind of like... It's just wrong, yeah. Yeah, I, I scratch my head at something. And you can see how people pick this up and take it along when yeah. you're putting cute analogies and then he gets on the Joe Rogan and I just yeah, couldn't yeah. believe that he was given that platform because I, I, it's not him I'm having the go at. It's just the practice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look at the, look what you just talked about there a second ago, talking about hydration with two different people. How many of those people are, are ingrained in a club? Yeah. And you throw a, a one-stick fits all kind of approach that everyone needs to dehydrate you're not going to get a, a good return and yeah. someone's going to get hurt yeah yeah definitely there's potential for fatalities like we have seen it i think in i think it was a big year in wrestling because like that as you're saying wrestling is one of those sports where white makes a big advantage so in them sports you see more extreme and um, white cutting methods so that's why probably you see in mma it's extreme in wrestling it's extreme in in boxing it's not as extreme doesn't mean them practices don't go on but in general mma and wrestling tend to be worse i think mma is is probably probably the worst or we're gonna start seeing more i think research coming out where i think the white cutting practices in mma at the moment are, are more most severe and it's because the the culture in mma is severe white cutting it's just i remember i was t- uh, talking to someone about it um because like that when Jock Lockhart says something and I, I like I've been got ragging about him. Every time he says something dangerous or puts something dangerous, like I'll I'll call it on it because some people that follow because he's Conor McGregor's coach or nutrition coach. Everyone everyone thinks he's the business because people have this perception that if you're an elite level athlete, you're gonna have the best support staff. You know, but that's what general public will will I know. think and, that. And do you think like, uh, do you think elite athletes are healthy? Yeah. And they're fucking yeah. not. No, some some aren't like not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When things always lead athlete, he's clever, it's all good. No, yeah. some of them are doing stupid things. Yeah. Now, they, they forget that some of them are just gifted. But they they automatically think, Oh, he's Conor McGregor's nutritionist, he must be one of the best because Conor McGregor is one of the best MMA athletes. So therefore they're assuming that he's one of the best nutritionists and then as a result you get a big following and people start listening to him and it's kinda of like culture manifests um i think spg have a lot or a lot of spg fighters go to lockhart someone's telling me they have an app where the the lads can just look at an app now so i think uh, 
like it's, Lockhart must have an app and they can just look and they say that they do what the app tells them to do uh, 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 what's that thing called I interviewed Jules Dalby Connor's uh, physiologist yeah. they've got a the, the fast is that what it is, is it? fast have an app coming out he was talking about that when I had him on the podcast I yeah. know Jules Jules a long time uh, he's uh, he does the physiology and he's doing yeah. that the, the, is he at Trinity fa- is he no, he, no I just remember seeing a picture of Conor McGregor at Trinity before doing no, that test Jules Dalby is he's, he's a physiologist and they come up with this fast program you know what yeah. I mean uh, and I think that because he was talking to me that time about the app I think that's probably it maybe is it, maybe it's that thing yeah and then the app just tells you know we're in the green rest and we're in the, I don't know it yet but you yeah, know it's yeah. to do with having rest days and all that and uh, I would have thought that maybe Jules would have been better placed to be his nutritionist and weight uh, cutting management because he's a, a background in physiology yeah maybe yeah he'd be probably more experienced or more qualified than Lockhart because Lockhart's thing is that he was in the Marines and then he did MMA and he cut weight himself in MMA and that's how he learned you know, even when Joe Rogan was asking him, you know, what is your background? Like he's like, oh, kind of like said, oh, learn from this, learn from this guy, or learn from this guy. And so Joe was like, so you do have a background in nutrition? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't actually say, oh, I did this course or I learned yeah. from this specific guy. You a lot know? of smoke and mirrors, wasn't there? A lot of bouncing yeah. around. It was a lot of uh, yeah. Is it like gray and, area? And Joe didn't have the rep- repertoire to challenge him. Like you know, he he didn't have the his own background in weight cutting nutrition or whatever. He didn't have the expertise to kind of challenge some of the points. And he usually does though. But look, yeah. he's usually my brother's a huge fan, and a couple of my mates are a huge fan of Joe Rogan. He seems to be knowledgeable and well read about a lot of things. Yeah. And I just found why did he not pull him on some of the things? Like I'm, I read and I'm okay and I understand stuff, but I wouldn't have the qualifications like you do and the the, the research and education you have. You'd be better placed. So I couldn't be calling him out on it. I just know where he's talking is bullshit and it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But I think Joe could have probably done a little bit better. Or yeah, I even I spring. I remember seeing the podcast with your man Jeff Nowitzki. Now he's one of the top guys in the UFC UFC performance institute. I don't know how long ago this podcast was because I just saw the clip of it or I just pulled it up. But he was even saying that they um, he referred to George Lockhart as an expert or something like that. Yeah, I think just thinking this guy is so high up in the UFC now I don't know if this is early on before it started coming out how dangerous Lockhart's methods are but he was like um, I'm not sure like so he was saying referring to George as an expert maybe that's before they got a director of nutrition at um, the USCPI because I think they have um, someone called Clint uh, he's a director of nutrition and he actually is a registered dietitian and has a, a background in wrestling himself so he actually the UFC PI do actually have the expertise there now mm. so definitely it's just aren't you isn't it yeah it's just a screen to me it's really counterintuitive for me to be interested in combat sports because I work on brain injury rehabilitation yeah, yeah, yeah. so for someone to lose 20 30 pounds the effects of that on the brain and then you go in and start getting smacks in the head it just can't just yeah. it, I just can't live with that it just hurts it just, what, it's what, dangerous seriously dangerous it, 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 especially when I'm saying we don't really know how long it will take for the cerebral fluid or cerebral fluids to like to be there to be fully restored so that like concussion that you know so it's bad enough getting hit if you're not dehydrated at all or if you're fully rehydrated or if you haven't gone through a cut it's bad enough getting hit in the head then long term damage already it's a badly designed fucking piece of work yeah. the brain you know and then for it to be dehydrated and getting smacks in the head it's just it's yeah it's kind of disaster yeah, absolutely come here what's the one thing you'd like people to take away from this interview after listening to uh, I suppose that 
if, if, if we could introduce some sort of key points is in what um, we did with the case study in terms of weight making. So give yourself enough time to make weight so that you can actually save to make the weight. What we did were some general guidelines that we have for, like, for our case study and athletes is that you should probably have about 2 grams per kilo of protein, about a gram of fat, and then try to get around 3 grams per kilo of carbohydrate. So that's kind of like the template that we used for our case study. Um, if you do know, or if you can measure directly or indirectly, so you can use some equations, measure someone's resting metabolic rate, try not to go below the resting <laughs> metabolic rate when you're dieting, because that's probably when you're going to start getting some symptoms of res, which is like relative energy deficiency in sport, which is kind of a big topic at the moment. Uh, and then if you are, people do cut weight in the last week, um, try limit it to like somewhere between five and 8% of total body weight. And you, you can do that. It's not just dehydration, it's cutting carbohydrate and also manipulation of gut content. So athletes might have a field day because through camp you're telling them to eat lots of fruit and vegetables, lots of fiber. Whereas a couple of days before a competition, you probably want to get all the fiber out because all that vegetables and stuff, you can lose like you can lose a kilo, two kilos just from reducing your fiber intake. So you might start eating more chocolate. Uh, eggs are great that uh, quite weak because high fat, high protein, low carbs, you're kind of into that thing, low fiber. So there is, that. so while you have that 5-8% wiggle realm, it doesn't mean you even have to rely on dehydration. There's one, one more point as well with dehydration that I probably should have touched on is that um, it might matter how you dehydrate so dehydration through exercise might be different through dehydration sitting in a sauna and that's because dehydration through exercise you're able to maintain plasma volume a little bit better because when you are exercising you get increased metabolism and the byproducts of metabolism are carbon dioxide and water so if you're breaking down carbohydrate and fat you're getting water released from the cell into the blood and that's probably why you're able to maintain plasma volume better so it's probably a little bit safer if you are if you do choose one over the other exercise might now there's no research to say this is kind of like me hypothesizing there is research to say that you maintain plasma volume better so i'd be i'd hypothesize that it's probably safer than passive dehydration but then you've got to ma manage that against fatigue as well cool Wow, 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 wow. I have to say that was a fantastic interview. I struggle at times to stay concentrated on my questions because I was too busy listening to you yeah. and the knowledge that you were giving me. I was fucking blown away. It's easy to go, go down sidetracks when you're talking about this sort of stuff, isn't it? Like it's easy to go down a rabbit hole and start talking about this. Unbelievable. Like this. It's brilliant. But you know what? And I've been saying this a long time. I love that my mate Carolyn from OSA Nutrition is with the sports, uh, with, with the Bachman Club up in Whitechurch. I just think they need it. I think they need the education. But like we said before we come on the podcast, kids in boxing, their attitude, their application, their personality, they're open to learn. They're brilliant. And I think like we can go along and give out about what they did in the past and it's all wrong. Yeah. But we're all fucking guilty of doing things wrong. Yeah. But the kids, I have to say in boxing, are absolutely open minded and they'll do things if you you know if you if you teach them yeah it does it does it really does te teach discipline and dedication boxing like in comparison to some some other sports you really do that kind of get that dedication and discipline that comes along with it i just think the the performance or the the combat sports needs professional input like yourself like isa nutrition need education also you know the psychology i think it does it does it does a huge market and if there was more money in it yeah people would be on it wouldn't they yeah i don't know i don't know where there's not more money in ireland because boxing is our, our best sport like i said our most successful sport if you look at olympics like 
I have an opinion about that and I think it's class divided. I yeah. think it's because if you look at, you know, it's working class, you know, but you go to any of the amateur fights, predominantly to be the travelling community or to be working class. Yeah. So Maybe, it's, yeah, it, it's yeah. not warm and fluffy like going to see Leinster playing yeah, or going to yeah. see uh, Lord Celtic playing. They're just my ideas. From yeah, that could be a very good point, actually. I never thought of it like that because it, cause, um, I remember the, the praise, like, and fair, rightly so, that the, the women's Irish hockey team they got their World Cup final. It was great for the country. It was great for them, and they were given lots of praise, and they were allocated more funding. But then you have like, um, like so Kelly Harrington just went and won uh, World Championships. And you now she did get she did get recognised, but she we have lots of good young boxers who are travelling the world and doing pr- pretty well. You know, mate, they're amazing human beings. Like the dedication, the commitment. You know. To, it's really difficult for somebody to stand alone in their community you know and you come from a working class area and then to go and I'm not saying those people are working class yeah. areas but I mean you know people are trying to the crab, man, the crab mentality people are trying to pull you back and keep you down so to have like strength and character and have the dedication and then go on and be successful for yeah. Ireland they should be they should be revered you know yeah should be because that, that could be kind of our next Katie Taylor coming through, you know? Absolutely. I and mean, Katie Taylor didn't get the recognition, recognition as much as she should. Yeah, yeah. So she's world champion now. She probably gets less coverage now that she's out of the Olympics and into professional than she did when she was, like, Olympic, you know, that way. Because everyone yeah. followed her. I don't know how much the coverage is now. Probably a bit more because she's on Sky. Because then you've got, like, other Olympic, other Irish Olympians who are doing well in professional box now as well. Whereas the media don't focus on something like Paddy Barnes fought for a world title. He's a three-time Olympian, two-time bronze medalist. Mm. And Mick Conlon is on the up now. He think he won his first title on the 21st. So these good young Irish fighters coming He's through. He's fantastic. Uh, and you have uh, John O'Carroll as well. Yeah, yeah. Crack yeah. it. I asked him good, to come on the attitude. podcast. Great attitude. Oh, good character, isn't he? Savage. I asked him to come on and he said, yeah, you come on the podcast, but then uh, MTK have a ban on Irish media. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably damaging because Mick's uh, MTK and Paddy's MTK so that's probably dam- that's probably why they don't get the recognition they deserve like they should be on Irish media like yeah. I'd love to interview I'd love to get their, their 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 stories out or have the chats but MTK you know they're, they're trying to punish you know RTE and the star and all these places and rightly so they're, they're doing a lot for Irish boxing MTK a lot, yeah a lot because a lot of the lads who actually work with are, are MTK because they have so many fighters now I think they're really doing well for other sports, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Again, it's... Tyson Fury, MTK. Yeah. So you got all these Rocky Fieldings, MTK. You know, all these... Carl Frampton. Yeah. yeah. Big, big names. Big names pulled in. And that's all like, I'm, I'm hope. I'm going to try to see if you can get kind of like a collaboration with, with MTK and, and a university where we can kind of work with some of the boxers and do research so that we can actually start putting more research into professional boxing at the same time helping the boxers yeah that's savage I've, I've tweeted MTK loads asking any chance we could meet for a point and have the chats about yeah, it yeah. but they haven't got back to me probably thinking who's that fucking Egypt over there just change your location to like Liverpool or something like that oh yeah <laughs> on Twitter just change it because then you won't think you're Irish and they'll just respond oh, deadly deadly <laughs> right Mark thanks so much for coming on the podcast I'm absolutely blown away by your generosity your time and knowledge no, it was good to be on. Glad to be glad to be invited. It was good. Good day out. Representing representing uh, IT Talent. IT Talent and John Moore's. John Moore's today, yeah. And MTK. Thanks very yeah. much for coming on the podcast. Brilliant to be on. Thank you. Okay, so there wraps up another tremendous interview. As always, I'd like to thank my supports, Noel Royley from Rooney Media. 
Niall has been in the graphic design business the last 20 years and producing quality work. For the last couple of years, they've been the chief graphic design for the college prospectus at UCD. Um, I've been using his services the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, producing posters for health and fitness stuff and always, always produces quality work. So check those guys out. Also, my old pal Carolyn Harvey from ISA Nutrition. For anybody interested in dropping body fat, gaining muscle, maintaining a healthy body weight, getting rid of some nutritional ailments, she's your woman. If you're also interested in competing bodybuilding competition, male or female, I would recommend her. I am currently working with Carolyn Harvey and the success has been phenomenal. I have done a review already and I plan to do more. But if nutrition and strength condition, that area is something that you'd like to get coaching or advice on, I would check it out. And the prices are really, really good, really good, better than a lot that's out there. So I recommend you check her out. Also, Miel Crew, Kevin Doyle, sound editing and just producing and just support. Absolutely legend, Kevin. And Miel, mate, Aaron Kyo, social media. Lads, you are brilliant. The team uh, would be lost without you. Okay, so that just leaves me to thank my listeners thanks a lot for listening i will urge you please 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 share this with family and friends we are on itunes soundcloud spotify all the kind of podcasts mediums that are out there we're we're on them right the way across we also have a youtube channel and so check us out on that please go on to itunes please subscribe please leave a delicious review we love it absolutely love it so that's all the plugging i'm going to do for this podcast as always, I will say to you, please show yourself compassion. Please spend some time with love and kindness in your life. Because if you are kind and loving to yourself, you will project that to the rest of the world. And if we can all could do that a small percentage of our day, the place would be a nice, nice place to live. Right, wherever you are in the world, mind yourself. Have a great day. Bye-bye.